We welcome Dave Muth, should say Dr. Dave. Uh, hey, thanks for being the first guest here. Let me give you your uh, long title before we jump in here. Uh, you lead the capital markets team as the managing director of asset management at People's Company. The whole purpose of this video series is to do a little deeper dive into stuff. And obviously you've done a bunch of stuff over your life, uh, you know, still connected to the farm. You've been part of ag tech startups. So you have a wide base of knowledge, but one thing that is helpful for us is you're kind of a deep dive guy here. So you're old school white paper. So we appreciate the time. No, thank you very much. This this is great and uh, look forward to the conversation. All right. So again, you're doing the deep dive look before we start going through here. What stands out in this research as you're looking at trends over the past year? Yeah, so so we're seeing a really interesting time in farmland, right? I would say that by and large, farmlands continue to perform as an inflation hedge in this inflationary period, uh, similarly to what it has historically. So that's a, that's a key characteristic, and we've seen that run happen. We also had some really unique circumstances that created a very strong cash environment for primary farmland owners, right? Farmers are still buying 60 or 70% of the farmland. They came into this inflationary period with a lot of cash in hand. We go back to the market facilitation, ad hoc payments, the uh, CFAP, Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, ad hoc payments. All of these factors created an environment where um, farmland actually, you know, had a really nice run here over the last few years. We are seeing transactional volume start to slow down, and that all makes sense relative to the cycles that uh, are playing out. One of the uniqueness of this space is that, you know, if you're making lawn furniture or something, you know, you're dealing with supply and demand, maybe you have supply chain issues or whatever, but you can ramp up production there if demand is there, right? We're not, they're not going to ramp up the available farmland. And you can see that each year we have just a little bit less of it than we did the year before in our country. How does the scarcity, relatively speaking, and the fact that it doesn't really change hands very often, how does that scarcity weigh into this? Yeah, so th the fundamental reality is that demand is going to outweigh supply for U.S. farmland. It, it just is a, a simple fact uh, that we work with in our space. And uh, as you mentioned, right, the number of acres are decreasing pretty consistently uh, and marginally uh, here in the U.S. There are some other parts of the, the globe where there will be a little bit more development of farmland. But generally speaking, when we look uh, across the entire planet, our available acreage per um, human being that it has to feed is going down. And uh, that that demographic trend is really consistent. And then you stack onto it the reality that uh, diets are changing in developing economies, right? More upgraded animal protein consumption, uh, higher quality diets. That puts a, a significant amount of pressure on how much we have to produce from each acre in order to uh, keep that food uh, moving. And in light of that pressure, as we know, the population's going up globally and the available land is decreasing slightly here. So those that's the that's the collision of forces here. So how does that weigh into things in that productivity has to keep improving and perhaps significantly in some areas to meet this future demand? 
Yeah, so the upside on this is that we're seeing those trends and in increasing productivity in a very clear way. And I think the uh, U United States corn yield curve uh, is, is a really good example, right? If we go back to the early 90s, we're down in that 100 to 105 bushel an acre range. We're well on our way to 200 bushel an acre across the country. And this is a combination of seed technology, uh, chemistry and fertility technology, management practices, outside data resources, creating better management dynamics, right? It's an it's a ongoing, continuous process of improvement that's creating some really strong outcomes. We're seeing those yield curves start to turn, uh, tick up a bit in other crops where some of these same investments and same, some of these same models that were deployed for corn are starting to impact these other crops. And this is going to have to sort of move out globally. And it goes into the, the animal uh, production space too, right? The amount of feed that's required to actually produce a calorie of uh, animal protein has gone down significantly with improved production practices as well. All of this has to come together to meet a pretty significant challenge. You mentioned in the headline the inflationary pressures, and you know you. I feel like you know you kind of joke with uh, older folks because they remember what inflation once was. You know, you start going back into the '80s when they're like, "Hey, back in my day, I remember." You know, when it was way up there. But clearly, for our comfort level, short term, the borrowing rates are quite a bit more than they were, especially if we start looking pre-pandemic here. So what is the impact of that been in this area of farmland? How has that impacted things? Yeah, so we're seeing two primary impacts, right? So so leverage borrow, bar, uh, buyers, folks that are borrowing money to acquire land. It's a much def different financial equation, right? It's, it's pretty challenging when you're talking about seven or eight percent long-term money uh, to buy assets that uh, work on a cap rate, an annual return of call it two and a half to three and a half percent. That's just a core math problem. So that has certainly squeezed a lot of the leveraged buyers out. We're also seeing a lot of the cash buyers that are taking a little bit of a look across the economic landscape of where can I go with my money to potentially create some additional returns. And you know, a one-year T-bill is in the fives. Um, it, it's gotten up, pushing almost five and a half. And that's a clipping a coupon stable investment. And, and there's just additional opportunities that are emerging. So uh, effectively, the way that's played out is that the uh, some of the reliable uh, farmland buyers um, are running into some real challenges or uh, potential uh, alternatives. And that buyer pool is felt like it's squeezing down just a little bit. And so big advantage if you have the cash liquidity here, if you if you don't have to borrow, and especially if you're looking this, you know, and appreciating the, you know, you bring up T-bills that, that may give you the same return, maybe even even better short term. But if you have the available cash and you're more focused on the longer term play here, that could be a significant advantage for you versus the new guy looking to break in who needs to borrow a bunch to get going. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And and we think that the T-bill conversation that we'll have with some investors, and that one specifically is just one example of a potential alternative that 
uh, cash buyers may be weighing uh, in terms of their farmland acquisitions. We think it's a little bit short-sighted, right? If you look at farmland, historically, a larger share of the total return comes from that asset appreciation. That goes back to the scarcity and the productivity issues that you, you mentioned earlier, and we talked through just a little bit. But farmland's a generational asset. What you see in the financials of the asset class uh, in that historical performance is that the particular price that you get into the asset class at is less important than just being able to access it, right? Because it's it's less than 2% uh, will actually turn over. The total asset value in the U.S. will turn over on an annual basis. And so some of these tensions in this movement in terms of the buyer marketplace, et cetera, could be creating some really interesting opportunities for folks to find assets to get into. When you step back and look at our political dynamic right now, that can impact so many things. So one of the benefits and almost a security blanket, if you will, are some of these federal programs that can really protect or mostly protect the production side of, of farmland ownership here. You know, we've got a temporary extension on the farm bill. But in light of the pressures on federal spending and all of this, you put all of all of this together. So how how does do all of these factors kind of play in when for the most part, so much of this usually is a guarantee. But, you know, looking ahead, do we do you think that that federal guarantee is going to remain will remain? Yeah, so so the federal crop insurance program is the most impactful program in and of itself in terms of protecting farmland ownership in that revenue stream on an annual basis. And it's truly incredible from a, an investment grade asset class perspective. Only one in the world that we know of where there's a federally subsidized program that creates a minimum annual revenue guarantee from operations. And it's well over 90% of the acres in the US that are protected through that federal crop insurance program. And so that just creates this incredible stability, even in an environment where, you know, weather's impactful, commodity prices, we saw that a little bit this year where there's going to be a lot of revenue claims because key commodity prices fell from uh, early in the year to, to later in the year. This is really stabilizing. And one thing that feels pretty certain is that the federal crop insurance program in and of itself is a bit of a sacred cow in the farm bill. And it fits a little bit like uh, the nutrition programs um, that are really clean. We don't have concerns about that particular program um, relative to the political dynamics that are out there. Um, when you start looking a little bit more at some of the ad hoc subsidies that have started to flow again uh, here over the past, call it five to six years, uh, those are areas where the dynamics are certainly going to be uh, much different and uh, somewhat unpredictable. Uh, but in reality, just that protection of that federal crop insurance program, uh, which we feel very confident about, it, is really impactful. One of the, the pressures, if you will, for so much of this will come down to sustainability. You, you talked about weather and there have been so many weather struggles in a lot of ways. It feels like drought is really kind of one of the bigger headlines over the last couple of years and 
of folks starting to deal with water scarcity and looking ahead, wondering how this is going to work. You have some producers who are switching crops, going to something that perhaps doesn't take as much uh, water demand in the future. And you have some background here when it comes to renewable fuels. I wonder maybe first of all, if you can kind of talk about uh, reducing carbon, you know, uh, carbon sequestration. There are a lot of different different sides of this, but clearly that feels like in a lot of different areas, this will be a big headline. The question is whether some of this is voluntary technology, how this all stuff works out. How do you see that playing into this? Yeah, so it's a really interesting dynamic, and it, it's also fairly politically charged, right? When you start talking about the, the net zero goals that are out there um, globally, and then certainly uh, here in the U.S., fitting it, you know, within our role, and some of these plans have recently been submitted to the to the UN bodies that are trying to govern this and direct it. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act was a big part of uh, capital infusion into uh, this whole process, and and net zero just means a zero emissions economy by 2050, right? That's the goal structure, and there's a lot of moving parts to that. A couple of things jump out pretty quickly relative to farmland in the U.S. This low carbon energy transition, right? When we move off of fossil fuels, we move into a renewables environment where you're going to have to use a lot of land, right? You move from highly concentrated energy generation to very highly distributed energy generation. And we start when we start looking at some of the projections around uh, how these revenue streams from the deployment of renewable energy uh, across the uh, landscape, the farmland landscape, uh, it's really quite impactful, right? And these revenue streams are long-term. They're going to stack in additional value. And that creates a dynamic where there's sort of an upside in farmland and uh, a whole nother element of the investment thesis that, that we're working on and reviewing when we think about farmland assets going forward. The other side is that um, soil is a very large carbon sink, a storage mechanism, and a net zero economy is going to require significant carbon storage. And when we start looking at uh, simple practice changes like no tillage and cover cropping, which are growing in uh, popularity and utilization, and certainly there's additional funding streams that are emerging to uh, subsidize and encourage the development and utilization of those practices. That's an even bigger revenue stream back to uh, farmland than the renewables are. And when we stack all of this together, this creates a multi-decade growth in income to the asset class that uh, we can stack on top of those core characteristics of what farmland has always historically done in terms of producing food, feed, fiber, and fuel. You talked about revenue streams. Wind can be one, but uh, allowing these wind turbines to uh, these leases to come on come on your property. Now we're seeing some communities kind of putting a moratorium on this. This one is also kind of politically charged. You have some who are concerned that they could be, frankly, dangerous to birds, those kind of things. Um, and then you have the storage technology that needs to needs to be improved for storage and for transmission here. How, how do you see wind playing into this? Because if 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 it is worked out and, and supported enough and can be economically sustainable here, that can be a really impressive income source for a landowner. Yeah, it's it's a pretty complicated dynamic, right? So uh, the 
the whole construct of this low carbon energy transition, the investment it takes, uh, both public and private, the regulatory environment around it, and then the individual landowners engaging in the process, right? Um, it's pretty complicated. Um, we uh, representing investors and um, investing and owning farmland like these alternative revenue streams, particularly when they're not consuming significantly acreage, right? Uh, solar is a whole different dynamic because that's a fundamental land use change where the math and the equation of the financials has to uh, be looked at in a very different way. So we we really like um, wind as a tool for increasing returns and long-term value on our farmland assets, but it's really hard and complicated to be able to step back and say, are we going to see the scale of deployment that's highlighted in a lot of these goal structures that you look at for a net zero 2050. And I don't have a strong answer for that. Um, and, and, and certainly uh, being out in the landscape and up around uh, my farm in North Central Iowa, there's plenty of those signs that say no more wind farms uh, posted in people's driveways. And uh, it's not entirely clear how that's going to, to play out. Now you mentioned solar and that is a different type of commitment to the available land you have for this another one where you know it may take some assistance to make this industry work now obviously in fairness we still you know we still supply supply government uh subsidies government help to the fossil fuels that have been around forever so where, where do you see solar going how does that play into this yeah so when you're when you're talking about highly productive say midwest farmland um the the financial dynamics are pretty challenging to displace that farmland and be able to move into a long-term solar contract. Uh, there's certainly scenarios where that's going to make sense and we're going to see it deployed. When we get to other parts of the country, particularly places where there's some water stress, you know, uh, in California, you, you have a lot of pressure on water utilization. The Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, SIGMA, is in the early phases of getting rolled that fully put together and then rolled out and deployed. And, you know, by most estimates, there's going to be several million acres that can no longer produce because the water limitations and a use like solar can make quite a bit of sense. You have some similar pressures in a place like Texas, where there's some significant aquifer de decline on farmland that's historically been productive with that ability to pump water. And so it, there's there's certainly parts of the country where uh, solar deployment makes a lot of sense because we're going to go from a very limited revenue stream to a much, much stronger one. And that actually creates better economics for the developer of the project as well. When we get into uh, regions like uh, the Corn Belt, um, then it's then it's a much different sort of question. And we also don't necessarily have as strong of a solar resource base um, in the Midwest is what you're going to have in some of these other parts of the country, too. You've mentioned biofuels. Uh, that was a part of your career uh, earlier on here. And you also talked about carbon. Carbon sequestration could be a big part of the future there if they can work out a lot of a lot of logistical and legal and cooperation hurdles and such. So where do where do biofuels fit in here in the state of Iowa? You have more corn going toward ethanol than you have going on people's 
uh, food plates. Um, there are resources that that are involved in this as well. So, and, but then you know you flip on a flip on the TV and about every other commercial, it feels like is for an, a, an EV and electric vehicle. So, what's the future of biofuels? Yeah, so the electric vehicle um, sort of mandates in some places, and certainly the incentives to move to that electrified passenger vehicle fleet in and of itself puts a lot of downward pressure on ethanol, right? That 17 and a half billion gallons that we produce roughly. Um, you know, what we see though, is there's some emerging pathways of ethanol to jet, right? Upgrading alcohol, the mixed alcohols into a sustainable aviation fuel. That is a significantly larger marketplace in terms of total volume consumed than current passenger vehicle ethanol utilization. Um, another emerging pathway relative to row crop farmland in particular uh, is a renewable diesel pathway. And diesel consumption, um, heavy diesel, if you will, for uh, tra heavy transportation, agricultural uses, other sorts of construction uses where we're unlikely to move off of a liquid fuel type of platform to execute that in the near term. Renewable diesel is going to create a, a whole nother dynamic of uh, value add potentially to, to farmland resources going forward. How it all exactly shakes out is yet to be seen. Certainly the carbon pipelines that a lot of folks uh, have certainly heard about and are, are part of the process, um, they're, they're important in the context of meeting some of these um, carbon intensity metrics in order to feed these really massive biofuels pathways. And there's a, there's a lot of work that's going on. There's posturing, there's uh, a, a lot of moving parts to it. So it's, it's a little bit hard to predict. Um, overall, as we look at this, it feels like a net positive for farmland. One of the other areas of this that I feel like you don't read a lot, you don't hear about, would be this concept of expanding recreational uses for land and people come up with some unique ways to maximize whatever the uniqueness of their property is. How big of a thing do you see this in the next few years? Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic and where we sit here in Iowa, right? Uh, a recreational lease for some hunting or uh, some other sort of use case feels fairly small relative to the revenue stream from the land. Uh, when we move into other parts of the country, uh, the Delta and, and the duck hunting as an example, um, these are actually really impactful revenue streams. Um, South Dakota and pheasant hunting, right? That That is a pretty impactful revenue stream. You see sort of post COVID that uh, more and more outdoor activities, the, there's a, a bit of a ramp up there. And when you look at the USDA numbers, we're still pretty small in terms of the total revenue from these broadly defined recreational uses, um, roughly a billion dollars across the country in 2017. Uh, but that had tripled uh, over the previous 15 years. And it seems like uh, that's going to continue to happen. And uh, the creative sort of entrepreneurial ways to maximize those revenue streams, I think are, are uh, out on the horizon in front of us to be able to continue to grow that revenue. And I, I think it does start to become more and more impactful as we look forward. 
Maybe to, to close us out here, as you looked through all of these trends and really started digging into these numbers, as you're sitting in your office and your eyes are going blurry looking at all this stuff, was there something that maybe kind of surprised you, like some trend line that you maybe hadn't thought as much about a year or two ago? You know, uh, I think that we've been, um, been able to sort of keep our eyes on how this is all rolling out. Uh, in a pretty clean way, right? And and one of my favorite conversations along this front is going back to uh, what happened leading into this current run-up in farmland, right? And uh, it it's the a massive amount of uh, cash, ad hoc cash subsidies that were pushed into farmers' checking accounts through uh, market facilitation program one and two, and then coronavirus food assistance program one and two, there's a third one that was less impactful to land uh, also. Uh, but one of the takeaways when we actually process that data and look through that I thought was um, really pretty incredible is there was about $54 billion that was cash that was pushed directly into farmers checking accounts. Just short of 10% of that came to the state of Iowa. Hmm. Okay, so there's about 5.25 billion of that. And if you look at uh, that bucket of cash, that's more value in uh, liquid cash than what we see of a farmland that transacts in the state in a given year. And so that statistically created a really strong uh, sort of signal that, hey, we're going to have a significant run in farmland because uh, we all know that that farmers uh, when they have available cash, that's the resource that they they want to go tackle. All right, Dave. Hey, we appreciate the deep look into all of this. Thanks a lot. No, thank you very much.